As we continue our study of Matthew's gospel, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 25. And we will be looking at the parable of the talents. And I've entitled my sermon this morning, Our Sacred Trust. Our Sacred Trust. While you're turning there, may I ask you a question? If God were to evaluate your job performance as his servant, what would he say? Would he say on your behalf, this is a tireless worker, a self-starter, one who is faithful and trustworthy and devoted, one that uses his or her gifts and talents and possessions to their fullest for my glory? Would he say that you are selfless, that you are willing to work tirelessly, even in obscurity and do so with a thankful heart, that you're full of joy and praise and that you rejoice in undeserved mercy and future reward? Indeed, this is a model servant. Or would he say something very different? Would he say of you that you are lazy unmotivated, a high-maintenance servant, one that is unfaithful and not trustworthy, perhaps one that gives up very easy, a poor steward of your gifts, of your talents, of your possessions. Instead, you use everything for yourself. Would he say that you are selfish and self-absorbed and that you seek the approval of men, that you are critical and a whiner, that you have kind of a welfare mentality, that you seek reward without responsibility. Indeed, this is not fit to be my servant. Is that what he would say? I hope not. Well, in today's text, we see a comparison between those who are faithfully devoted to the Master Versus those who are filled with sloth and indifference. Now, may I remind you that Jesus is continuing this theme of spiritual preparedness for the kingdom of heaven. Although he has primarily been addressing those who will be alive during the time of the tribulation, his warnings will apply as well to all of us this side of the rapture. In Matthew 24, he has described in great detail some of the signs that precede his imminent and glorious return, making it clear that we don't know when that will be. And last week, he spoke to us through the parable of the ten virgins, a warning to the self-deceived, those who profess Christ but do not possess him, emphasizing the importance of spiritual readiness And now today, he has yet another parable, the parable of the talents, emphasizing spiritual service, which will be, and catch this, a proof of genuine saving faith. Follow along as I read the Lord's words in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. 
And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But... His master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have. Even what he does have shall be taken away and cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This morning, our text unfolds before us in four basic categories as we examine this issue of our sacred trust we will see four distinct perspectives of this issue. First of all, we will examine the trust given. Secondly, the labor required. Thirdly, the inevitable audit. And fourthly, the eternal reward. First of all, let's look at the trust given, the spiritual opportunities for service that God has given all of those who are truly his servant. In verses 14 and 15, we read, for it, let's stop there, it referring to what? Well, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, as he has been talking about. This, again, you will recall, is the, the sphere of God's spiritual dominion. Sometimes in the scriptures, we see that this refers to the invisible, mystical body of Christ, encompassing all of the saints down through redemptive history. And sometimes, as in this particular case, it refers to the visible, observable body of Christ, the organized church. And so think of what you're reading now as pertaining to 
this microcosm of the church at Calvary Bible Church, for example. So he says, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves, or in other words, his bondservant, and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went away on his journey. Now, friends, in this kingdom parable, the man is obviously Christ, and the journey illustrates the period of his earthly departure between his first and his second coming, his first advent and his second. And the slaves represent those who profess Christ, members of the visible church on earth, each one having been entrusted with unique responsibilities based upon varying levels of God-given ability. Now, it's important for you to understand that slaves in Jesus' day were basically the managers of one's estate, especially wealthy people. They had these servants as the overseers of all that they owned. Now, the servant themselves really owned nothing But very often they were well-educated and often they were uniquely talented, uniquely gifted, uniquely skilled in some particular craft. And these people were put in charge as stewards of one's household. In fact, the master even had power over their life. If you didn't like the slave, they could literally kill the slave. Now, the talent in the parable is not a reference to some special ability like we would think about it in our English vernacular. But rather, this is a reference to a measurement of weight that determined the value of various coins. For example, a gold coin would weigh more than a silver coin and therefore would have more weight. And then you would have copper, bronze coins and so on decreasing in weight and therefore decreasing in value. And so, therefore, in this parable, the talents merely represent the various levels of stewardship responsibility that God has given each of us based on our ability, our God-given ability. Now, like these servants, every person has differing levels of intellectual, physical, and even spiritual ability. Some things come very easy to some people and very hard to other people. As we look at people, we see that even in the intellectual and physical realm, uh, people tend to have inherent God-given abilities, God-given aptitudes to do some things exceedingly well. And, therefore, we can look at people and realize that not everybody can be a great athlete as hard as they might try. Not everyone is capable of being a great writer or a great musician or a great mathematician or a great orator or a teacher or a scholar or an artist. Not everyone has the mind of Calvin and of Luther and of Spurgeon. And all of the education and all of the environment in the world could never make it so. But in God's great sovereignty, God has uniquely made us all different, our differences being yet another testimony to his glory. And for those who are truly kingdom citizens, 
whatever abilities and whatever opportunities that we have, whether they be great or small, they are all gifts from God for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the father of lights. We're told in James 1:17. Spurgeon has well said that no man hath anything of his own except his sins. Now, as we look at the New Testament, we see, for example, there's a wide variety of spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12:4, we read that there are diversities of gifts. There are differences of ministries, the text goes on to say. There are even diversities of activities. And in verse 7 it says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And then he goes on to list uh, basic categories of giftedness. You might think of them, the various spiritual gifts that are mentioned, as the primary colors on an artist's palette. And you can mix them in a myriad of ways to create every imaginable color in the rainbow. So, too, the vast array of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. And likewise, people have varying levels of uh, natural abilities, natural talents, and even varying levels of educational opportunities, and on it goes. But, dear friends, whatever our lot, whatever our gifts and abilities, we should be content And make the most of them. Now, some will complain, and I've heard this, and maybe you have heard it as well. Woe is me. God has just not given me very much. Um, Others around me have much more talent than I do, and on and on it goes. My dear friends, you want to be careful never to challenge God's sovereign right to assess to each person what he desires. Whatever assets he wants to give us, he can give us those. We have no more right to challenge that than an amoeba has a right to shake his fist in God's face and say, why couldn't I be Beethoven? Who are we as the clay to complain against the potter for his design? And often I will hear people, and I believe people that will say this are strangers to the God of the Bible, but they will grumble against God's sovereign right to do what he wants to do with his creation, charging him with being unfair. My, my, my. How dare we indict God with the very thing we love in ourselves? Don't we all love to be free to do whatever we want to do? Don't we all demand our right to self-determination, especially in our Western culture? Don't we all insist upon our right to do whatever we please? Dear friends, we all love to coronate ourselves as king and then reign as sovereigns upon our puny little thrones. And yet, we shake our fist at God because He indeed is the sovereign? What folly that is. May I remind you that God is God and we are not. And all that we have and all that we are has been determined by His infinite wisdom and His infinite love, and we should rejoice in even the smallest expression of His favor towards us. And however humble our charge or however meager our estate, we will be judged based upon our management of it. And our prayer should be, God, thank You for my sacred trust 
that you have given to me. I do not envy those who have been given more, nor do I complain about my portion. But rather, I rejoice in your perfect allotment to me. And I pray that you will give me grace to labor to the point of exhaustion, that you might receive all of the glory with whatever increase I can bring to you. Beloved, please remember, on the final day of reckoning, God does not grade on the curve, all right? He does not grade on the curve, but rather he will look at you based solely upon what he has specifically entrusted to you individually and according to the abilities that he has given you. So when we look at the text here, we see there's three slaves, one with five talents, one with three and one with one. And the question here is, well, what will they do in the master's absence? And like these slaves, we will be judged relative to equal effort, according to ability, not equal return. We've all been given a sacred trust. And you want to ask yourself as we go through this text this morning, what has God uniquely given me? What types of abilities, what types of resources, what types of spiritual gifts, what types of opportunities to serve? And am am I making the most of all that he has granted me? Are you a faithful steward of what God has entrusted you? Or do you live purely for yourself? Do you grumble against God and maybe try to be something that you're not rather than being what you are? Do you have envy towards others because you do not have the gifts maybe that they have or the opportunities that they have? So we see our sacred trust, but we also secondly see the labor required beginning in verse 16. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now I want you to notice with the first two slaves, there is a sense of urgency. There is a sense of dedication as we look at the word immediately. They wasted no time. There was an eagerness to serve the master. Now, friends, here is the picture of a dedicated saint, one who is consumed with the purposes of God. One who is consumed with serving the master as his or her number one priority, one who is industrious, who is unwilling to waste any time, waste any resources, one who is committed to take full advantage of every opportunity to multiply the master's investment in them. And notice, two slaves were industrious, both of them doubling the talents they received. Likewise, each of us are given different gifts, different opportunities, and we should do all we can to maximize our sacred trust. And this is our responsibility before the Lord. Dear friends, we are under obligation to be about his business and to live up to our God-given potential. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, we read, Always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The Spirit of God tells us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 15, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. 
So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The idea of what, what is God's will for you in light of his plan of redemption. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4 and verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, while our results will vary, God is concerned that we all exert the maximum effort. This is his point. In fact, the Lord has promised that each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 8. Now, it's important that I digress for a moment. May I remind you that the primary context for our Lord's message here is in the whole idea of laboring within the church. That our work, our labor should be in and through the local church, the body of Christ. This is far different from those who want to relax, stay away from a church and just listen to tapes. Just listen to the radio. Just kind of worship on the television. But dear friends, as we read the New Testament, we see that the church is the place where we have needed accountability. The local church is the place where there is the gathering of those that truly worship the Lord. It is in the context of the local church that we find the realm of true spiritual fellowship. The church is the place where the truth is proclaimed and it is protected. It is the local church where you are nourished. It is the chief place of spiritual edification. The church is the environment where our spiritual gifts are discovered and developed and where spiritual leadership matures. The New Testament teaches that our sanctification is to be a corporate process. We are to labor and grow in community. As Ephesians 4 verse 2 says, with all lowliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And frankly, those who deliberately live as an island unto themselves have no claim to the body of Christ. They have no part of the bridal church, regardless of their profession. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, we read, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I've heard all of the excuses in my many years of ministry. Oh, I'm too busy. I'm just too tired. I have to work on Sundays. Church is just not my thing, even during the rest of the week. Friends, may I tell you, unless you cannot find a Christ-honoring church in your community, what you are really saying is serving the Lord is just simply not a priority in my life, and I prefer to labor for myself. You can say it any way you want to, but ultimately that's what you're saying. And such an attitude is certain to forfeit blessing in your life. 
Because, friends, again, we all have a sacred charge, and that charge is to be heeded in the context of the church. It's not to say that all of all that we do is in and for the church, but it flows in and through the church. And we must take seriously the labor that is required. And yes, it might mean that you need to find another job. It might mean that you need to move if that's possible. But the point is, you need to make every effort to be a part of a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church where you can grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ and fulfill your sacred trust. If you can't find a church, start one. But notice the third slave here. Jesus illustrates what I'm just saying with the first two slaves, but notice the third slave. It's interesting here, although his master gave him fewer talents to begin with, he expected the same exertion. He expected the same devotion. But notice in verse 18, but he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, let's back up for a second. Out of necessity in those days, since they didn't have banks and they didn't have vaults and whatnot, it was very common very customary for people to go find rocks and holes and whatnot to hide their coins, their valuables, and so on. And this is certainly the context here. But here's the point. One would never do this if they were concerned about wisely investing their master's money so that they can accumulate some kind of profit for the master that they love and serve. That's the point. It's like, well, well, what is this man thinking? What type of twisted rationale would cause him to do this? In verses uh, 24 and 25, we get the answer. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Dear friends, here is a picture of a false professor. A tear amongst the wheat. One who outwardly, outwardly claims to be a servant of the master. But as we look at this, there's two things that say otherwise. First of all, we can see by his lack of service, by his utter disregard for his stewardship responsibility to honor the Lord by rendering faithful, fruitful service, he proves that he is unregenerate. You see, to put it simply, those who love Christ... Serve Christ. I don't know how else to put it. False professors do not. They live for themselves. Their life will be characterized by wasted opportunity. I see this all the time. People that attach themselves to a church, or at least they profess to be a Christian, but they want nothing to do with the family of God. They want no accountability. They really have no desire to grow or to serve other people, to use their gifts, put the Holy Spirit on display to somehow serve in the body of Christ. They really have no desire to serve the master when it's all said and done. And therefore, they bear no fruit. Worse yet, this wicked slave proves that he's unregenerate as the Analogy goes on here because he, like all phony Christians, will accuse God 
of being something that he's not. We see this here with what this man, this slave, has said about his master being a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. You see, regardless of one's profession, when they have some distorted, perverted understanding of God, typically it is because of their willful ignorance of His character and because they do not have the Spirit of God that will teach them. And as a result, they insult and they will indict God. And they will resent him, as this slave has done. In fact, what this slave is basically saying is, yes, Master, I, I knew that, that, that you were a cruel man, that, that you're uncaring and you're crafty and you're a bit crooked. You see, you, you, you reap where you didn't sow and you gather where you scatter no seed. So therefore, I can't really trust you. Friends, this is the attitude of someone who is a stranger of the Most High God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible. And someone who has no intimate knowledge of the Savior, who is full of mercy and grace and truth. Friends, enmity towards God will always betray a son of disobedience. Someone whose mind and heart is so utterly depraved that they have no conception of who the master really is. In thinking of this, my mind went to the second part of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. You might recall in that uh, Bunyan describes his wife's conversion and um, her friend and so on. And he calls his wife here Christiana and her friend Mercy. And what we see in one of the stories is a, an encounter with similar professors of Christ as this third slave. And their names say it all. Their names were simple, sloth, and presumption. Names betray the character, right? And by the way, Christian had known these people earlier. And these were descriptions of actual people that he had known in his Christian life. Well, here's what one segment of the story has to say. Now, I saw further in my dream that they went on until they came to the place where simple sloth and presumption lay sleeping. When Christian went by on his pilgrimage, they were still there a little ways off the other side of the road. And by the way, the road is always the narrow way. And non-believers never want to live on the narrow way. They're always a little bit off the road on their own road. Their hands and feet had been cuffed in chains and they were hanging dead. A gruesome picture. Then Mercy asked their guide, who are these three men? Why are they left hanging there? These three were men who had some very bad qualities, answered Greatheart. Not only had they no intention of becoming pilgrims themselves, but they also hindered everyone else they could. They were slothful and foolish themselves, and they sought to persuade others to be like them, promising that in the end they would all do quite well. When Christian went by, they were asleep. And now, when you were going by, they had been hanged. Well, were they actually able to persuade some to think like them, asked Mercy? Yes, answered Greatheart. 
They turned several out of the way. There was one whose name was Slowpace, who they were able to persuade. They also prevailed upon short wind, no heart, linger after lust, sleepy head, and a young woman named Dull. As if this were not bad enough, they also gave a bad report of your Lord, persuading others that he was a taskmaster. By the way, the same type of thing that this third slave said about the Lord, about his master. They also spread around an evil report of the good land, saying it was not half as good as some pretended to be. They slandered his servants, saying the best of them were meddlesome and troublemaking busybodies. Further, they called the bread of God mere husks, the comforts of his children mere imaginations, and the travel and labor of pilgrims things of no purpose. My, said Christiana, if they were like this, I won't grieve for them. They have only gotten what they deserved. I think it is a good thing that they are hanging so close to the highway so that others can see them and be warned. End quote. And my friends, that is my desire this morning, that you be warned as you examine your heart. So we've seen our sacred trust We've seen the labor required. Now, thirdly, we notice the inevitable audit beginning in verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. By the way, here again, Jesus gives a hint that he was going to be away for a long time. And he's going to return unexpectedly. And when he comes, he's going to return to settle accounts. The text goes on to say, and the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted me with five talents, and I gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the text goes on to say that he said the same thing with the slave that had been entrusted with two talents. And I find it interesting that the slave with two talents approached the master with the very same confident joy that his fellow slave had who had the five talents. Because, friends, again, please understand, at the final audit, the master will not be concerned with how many talents you were given because he's the one that gave them to you. But what he will be concerned with is your degree of faithfulness in using them for his glory. That is the basis of our reward. But notice the master's reckoning of the third slave who violated the master's trust and maligned the master's character and said, I was afraid and, and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. And now seeing through his hypocrisy and the ridiculous excuse that the slave had offered, the master says in verse 26, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew, knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to, ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. In other words, what a preposterous excuse. You've hung yourself with your own rope. My friends, if you stand someday in the presence of Almighty God and you do so, Apart from Christ, God forbid, 
And you cannot plead the blood of Christ. What you have to say, your greatest rationalization, your greatest excuse will be proven to be nothing more than the babblings of a fool. Because his omniscient, penetrating holiness will expose you for what you are. So Jesus is basically saying, how foolish, don't give me that. <laughs> Here's the point. If, if you really thought that I was a hard man and, 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 and demanded a return on things that weren't even mine, then you would have had, had even more motivation to invest my money so that at least I could re receive some simple interest on what was mine. What an idiotic excuse. This is such a picture of all of the excuses that people come up with. Oh, they sound good at the time, but they will be mere folly in the presence of a holy God. And so Jesus was basically saying, no, no, you were utterly indifferent towards me. You had no desire to glorify me. You wasted all of the opportunities that I gave you and you chose instead to live your life for yourself. That is the point. It's tragic when I go to funerals, especially when I have to do them. And as many of you know, because I've buried many of your family members and your friends, I try to spend time with the family members to collect information so that I can appropriately eulogize the deceased. And one of the things that is often very, very sad is that when I hear the loved ones described, describe the one who has now passed away, very often I find that they say virtually nothing about their faithfulness in serving the Lord. There's hardly any stories in many cases of, of people who really were dedicated to serving the Master. Instead, it's a little story here and a little story there and a little funny vignette there and a little something over here. And, and, and it's very hard. I find myself always aching because I am probably eulogizing someone who is not in the presence of God. People that lived their lives for themselves. So, after describing our sacred trust and the labor that is required and warning about the inevitable audit, the Lord continues and He concludes by describing the reward that we gain. Notice verse 28, Therefore, take away the talent from him, in other words, the wicked slave, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. Let me stop here for a moment. Make sure you understand this. Here's the principle. Faithful Christians are fruitful Christians. All right? Phony Christians are not. They're not fruitful. And to whatever degree a true believer maximizes their sacred trust, God will give them even more opportunities to serve and more opportunities to bear fruit. And sadly, sometimes even genuine believers squander their opportunities that God has given them, ignore their gifts. And as a result, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.15, their work will be burned up 
and he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved so as so yet so as by fire. But the person represented by the third slave proves that they are unregenerate, that they are unsaved because of their selfish neglect. That's the point here. Therefore, not only will they forfeit the opportunities that they had to to serve the master on earth, but they will ultimately have the same eternal fate as this third slave in verse 30, where the Lord says, cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But friends, think of the reward that belongs to those who take full advantage of all of the opportunities that God gives them. He says, you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. What an incredible concept here. What does this mean? Well, it means simply this. God will increase your charge on earth and in heaven based upon your faithfulness. Very simple. Now, remember again, the context here is the Lord is is primarily addressing those that have come to faith, that will come to faith to him during the time of the tribulation. That tribulation generation, but also it has therefore reference to the millennial kingdom to follow. By the way, we see this even more explicitly stated, the idea that that ultimately these rewards pertain to the millennial kingdom and even the eternal state beyond the the kingdom. We see this more explicitly stated in Luke 19. You will recall there's a similar similar parable of the nobleman. Remember, uh, he had ten servants and he gave each one uh, a a mina to, to invest for him and then describes how he went away into a far country and then later he returned and, and he rewarded each servant based upon their level of faithfulness. And it's interesting in that parable, after the nobleman established his kingdom, he rewarded them. One, one servant had ten minas and he placed him over ten cities. Another one had a five-fold increase and he placed him over five cities and so on. Now, here in the parable of the talents, we see the same general theme. And that is faithful service on earth is the basis for kingdom rewards, both in the millennial kingdom and in the eternal state. In other words, faithful saints will be rewarded commensurate to their level of devotion on earth. You were faithful with a few things, the Lord says. I will put you in charge of many things. A wonderful thought. I I couldn't improve upon John MacArthur's comment regarding this. uh, Let let me share this with you. This, uh, This, I thought, spoke especially to my heart. Quote, of the many things heaven will be, it will not be boring. Our heavenly perfection, for example, will not be a matter simply of never making a mistake. Nor will it be always making a hole in one or a home run, as it were. Rather, it will be a time of ever expanding and increasingly joyous service. And the saints who then will serve the most and rejoice the most will be those who have served the Lord most steadfastly while on earth. Every soul in heaven will equally possess eternal life, he goes on to say. And will be equally righteous, equally Christ-like, and equally glorious. Everyone will be equally perfect because perfection has no degrees. The difference will be in opportunities and levels of service. 
Just as the angels serve God in ranks, so will redeemed men and women. And the degree of their heavenly service will have been determined by the devotedness of their earthly service. He goes on to say, heaven will not involve differing qualities of service because everything heavenly is perfect. Everything done for the Lord will be perfectly right and perfectly satisfying. There will be no distinctions of superiority and inferiority, and there will be no envy, jealousy, or any other remnant of sinful human nature. Whatever one's rank or responsibility or opportunity, those will be God's perfect will for that individual, and therefore will be perfectly enjoyed. And then he concludes by saying this, in a way that is beyond our present comprehension, Believers will be both equal and unequal in the millennium and in the eternal state. End quote. Well, friends, this morning I conclude by simply saying how sad, how sad to see even genuine Christians. Forget for a moment the, 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 the third slave that, that, that clearly represents those who are professors but not possessors of Christ. Think of those, and this may be you, who who are truly believers, but you're kind of auditing the, the Christian life. You're not really involved. You're just kind of on the sideline watching other people do things. You, you, you really have no grasp of your spiritual giftedness and you really have no clear sense of direction. You, you have no real understanding of what the Master has charged you with. Life is kind of all about you. I've seen this so many times. Here's kind of how this life goes. They come to Christ. They love the Lord at some level, but they're really involved in a lot of things outside of Christian ministry. Those things are really more important. And so they kind of audit church. Well, they show up for their work and their career. And they earn enough money to kind of fund their hobbies and their pleasures and and when work is over, they go home, kind of veg out on television and cheer their favorite sports team and their favorite race car driver. And then they go on a few family vacations. Little by little, they kind of do what we all do. They grow old, grow feeble, get sick, spend your life savings on health care, and then you die. What kind of life is that? Is that really what you want? To go through your whole Christian life and really never make a difference. Never really have any, any footprints to leave behind your journey through life. Why? Why would you do that? You, you had spiritual gifts. You had spiritual opportunities. Especially for those of you around here. You, you've got a church. You've got a church family. You've got a myriad of opportunities to serve the Lord. And what do you do? You squander it all away on things that are eternally insignificant. Because life is all about you. And unfortunately, you may end up like the one described in 1 Corinthians 3.15. Your work will be burned up and you will suffer loss of reward. Oh yeah, you'll be saved, but so... As through fire. Well, I leave you with this question or these questions. What about you? Are, are you making the most of what God has given you?
That's, that's the bottom line with all of this. Are you maximizing your talents? Are you taking advantage of all of the opportunities that you have? I rejoice knowing that about 75% of those who are on the membership roles, and some that aren't even yet members, so roughly 75% of you are involved in some active form of ministry. That, that, that's wonderful. And I know a lot of people are even outside the church at, at certain levels, but think what it would be like. Think what we could do if we got everybody involved. And if out of that 75%, we begin to see that we can really double our efforts here. We've all been given a sacred trust. Can you even define what yours is? Is your current labor worthy of the Master's praise? Or are you living beneath your potential, giving only a token service? Or worse yet, is your service virtually non-existent? Betraying the fact that you are indifferent towards the Master. May I warn you that if that is you, there will be a final audit coming someday. And I plead with you to repent of your sins and to believe in Christ Jesus. Make Him your Savior, your Lord, and be about His business. Lest someday He come when you least expect Him. And you hear Him finally say, Cast this one out, this worthless slave, into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, these are sober words. This is such a sober reminder of the importance of being faithful and dedicated to serving you. And Lord, we thank you that by the power of your spirit, we can do so and do so with great joy. And Lord, for those who render but a token service, how I pray that you will bring conviction to their heart. I pray, Lord, that they will really get serious about living for the Master, knowing that nothing else really makes any difference. And Lord, for those who know that they are indifferent completely towards any of these things, how I pray that by Your grace You will bring conviction to their hearts and they, that even today they will experience the miracle of the new birth. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.